0: Hello and welcome to In Good Company on NTS Radio, a monthly show for working women with me, Atega Uagba. If this is the first time you're tuning in, a quick intro. I'm the founder of Women Who, which is a London-based community for creative working women, and I'm also the author of the Sunday Times bestseller, Little Black Book, a modern career guide for working women that you can find on Amazon or at all good bookstores. This podcast is all about providing you with the practical advice and fresh ideas that will help you work better aided and abetted by some of the smart, successful, creative women that I know. New episodes are released monthly, and you can listen to them live on NTS, or you can download them via iTunes, so make sure you subscribe now to automatically get each new episode straight to your phone. On this month's show, I've got journalist and social media influencer Catherine Allmerod, She's been working in the fashion industry for over a decade, starting out as a fashion assistant before climbing the ranks at some of the UK's most prestigious women's magazines before striking out on her own a few years ago to set up a brand consulting business. I'm currently halfway through reading her first book, which comes out in just over a week's time. It's called Why Social Media is Ruining Your Life, and it's all about the pressure cooker of comparison that social media has created and how to go about navigating that, seeing as social media doesn't seem to be going away anytime soon. Her book has been referred to as a call to arms from the eye of the storm. Perhaps because as an influencer herself, Catherine is someone who does make a living out of social media. So of course, I was really curious to find out how she reconciled what to me seemed like two inherently contradictory positions. Also coming up on this month's Ask Ortega, a letter from a reader who's being undermined by her male colleague on account of her gender. How unoriginal. First though, here's my conversation with Catherine. Yeah.
1: So my first, first job in fashion was while I was doing my master's degree. Oh, actually, that's like, does retail count? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so my first job in fashion was working at Harvey Nichols on St. George's Square in Edinburgh. Is mm-hmm. that the name of the square? St. Andrew Square. Oh, my God. I'm <laughs> it was that long ago. Mind. So, anyway, Harvey Nichols in Edinburgh. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I worked on the contemporary floor. Mm-hmm. It was, like, 2004, something like that. It was, you know, Phoebe It was at, um Chloe. It was, like, a really big moment in mm. British fashion. Mm. And I thought that I wanted to be a barrister. Really? Yeah, so... That, you know, I was just working there to pay my rent Mm. um, because I was doing a history degree and something happened. (laughs) When you say
0: something happened. Well,
1: I'd always liked shopping, but Mm. being around proper high-end clothes Mm -hmm. made me realise that actually I was really interested in that industry Mm. and I'd really like to be involved somehow. And, like, I didn't actually end up staying at Harvey Nichols for very long. I moved on to other retail stores and I worked at... Okay, Bennett and uh, um, Wallace and all different shops mm. along along the way, but it was that's where the real taste of proper proper fashion mm. like came into my life, I suppose. And I started thinking, wow, what an amazing thing it would be to be working in an industry like that. Mm. Anyway, those thoughts kind of percolated and percolated, and something happened through my degree in that uh, something changed my whole, I guess, perspective on life. Because I think when I went to university I was very, very money driven. Mm -hmm. Um I every step that I'd taken along the way of my education was about right, how am I going to get this job so I can get a nice house, Mm -hmm. a nice car. Um like you know, it I think when you've come from not having very much And your family have invested in your education. Mm. That seems the only other side of the, you know, the the line sheet, basically. Mm. Um, But, yeah, I ruined it for everyone. (laughs) Like I'm actually going to work in clothes. Yeah, I'm actually going to try and start this career that I know no one in, know nothing about. No one in my family, like, you know, people... Worked in clerical positions, mm. and so they might be in in uh, offices. But a lot of them, like my grandparents and a lot of my mum's friends, and they, you know, they work blue collar jobs. Yeah. So it was like no one had any infamy or suggestion. Mm. The only thing my mum said was like, "Oh, at the front of magazines, there are telephone numbers for people that you can call up a desk. Mm. There are people's names. So let's." Try calling them and see if you can get an internship over your summer holiday. And I, I mean that seems really smart. Yeah, I mean, you'd think that I would have thought of that, but <laughs> anyway, you know, she, she'd been a secretary um, in the advertising industry mm. in like the 70s, 80s heyday in mm. London. So she kind of had an idea of what it takes. And, you know, she was she's always been like, just pick up the phone type of person. And, you know, that was the culture back mm. then. We didn't have emails. If you wanted to get anywhere, you picked up a phone. Mm. And I think like a lot of people of my generation I find that massively intimidating like Mm. it turns my stomach still now having to have a telephone call you know even if I have to call the delivery driver I'm like oh (laughs) (laughs) you know as if it's but like like the idea of doing that when I didn't like I had confidence but I just didn't have that much confidence in myself anyway I, I ended up calling up and I got an internship at InStyle magazine. Oh wow. Yep and then I ended up working at The Independent and Sunday Times Style and Marie Claire and I ended up working for free and that was full time for nearly two years. Wow. Yeah.
0: How did you
1: make ends meet? Again strategy Mm. (laughs) came into play. So my dad um had moved to Germany and he worked for a company um, that is loosely, well, he he was Minister of Defence, but he moved over to work for the EU and they offered um, help for um, any of the kids, of the the workers there to go through um, education, so Mm. university and so on. It was kind of diplomatic. Yes, but they would pay for you up till twenty six
0: that's very generous. Yeah, but
1: that's it's based in Germany and like that's like we forget but mm. across Europe people are in education for years, yeah. you know. Um they might not finish their degree properly until they're 28. Mm. And it, I guess it's the same here for, you know, architects or whatever. Mm. But, you know, we have quite a short degree process in comparison to the mm. rest of Europe. Anyway. So, I was like, okay, how am I going to get this money? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. So I decided to enrol on a master's course. I didn't. This is the mad thing. Looking back, like I had a, a first-class history degree, like stellar academic background. I'd been involved in, you know, a million different, you know, I, I you know, I'd done. I've been working. I'd you know, done so many other things, but I didn't believe in myself enough to apply for a fashion journalism course. Mm. I thought I don't have any background in that. I haven't edited the student newspaper or anything Mm. like that. But I was like, I do know history. So I decided to apply for a master's in fashion history. Mm. But I think that's really important because I was 22 at that point, you'd think at that juncture, with the career that I've since had, that I'd be like, OK, I've got this, I'm going to go out and tell the world who I am and what I want to be. But I, I wasn't there yet, you mm. know. It took me, I had to end up doing a 16-month course on fashion history, which isn't actually what I wanted to do, mm. um, while at the same time full-time freelancing, as well, not freelancing, work experience internship, To then get to the end and be like, okay, that's why I want to be a fashion journalist. Really? (laughs) Yeah, it was like a big, big, like psychological process, I suppose, of Mm. admitting to myself, like, yeah, that's what I wanted. I just, I didn't think that they'd accept me on the course to be a journalist. Like, Mm. I didn't believe that, you know, I had what it, what it would take for that application process.
0: That's, yeah, it is really ironic considering the career you've then gone on to have in fashion journalism. Um, And I suppose that's kind of a lesson to anyone listening who kind of is lacking that confidence.
1: Exactly. Just go for it. At the end of the day, they can always say no. And then you can go and apply for the thing that maybe you do feel like you've got in the bag. I think that that's a huge thing that I still struggle with, that you know you've maybe got two options you've got something that you know is a safe bet and is really likely for you to achieve and then something that's a stretch and too often I think still in my career I've gone for the safe bet and it's often other people in my life who have then turned to me and said are you mad like go for it what have you got to lose my mom my boyfriend friends and sometimes that's what I've needed to to push myself
0: out the comfort zone that's really interesting. And when you, so you finished this master's?
1: Yeah, I finished this master's and at the same time, that that was when the money ended and yeah. it didn't cover everything at all. Like I also worked in Monsoon, okay. um, Saturday, Sunday and evenings, mm. um, one or two evenings a week. Um, so, you know, because obviously rent and living. Yeah. Um, and at the time, um, I then was with my ex-husband and we moved out to the sticks, like proper, proper... Um, Countryside, just mm. outside Maidenhead. Oh, wow. Um, and I commuted to East London every day, which was four and a half hours of my day every day to so work it, at Sunday Times Style for free.
0: Oh, my God. <laughs> that is, I mean, I think oh. it's... I don't know whether the unpaid, I think people are starting to crack down on unpaid internships. Um, As as they should. Because because that is unsustainable. And I think you were able to find a loophole. Exactly. But generally speaking, the only people that can do those sorts of things are people who are wealthy. And
1: look, if I didn't have that amazing, um, you know, opportunity through my dad's company, there's no way I would have been able to do it. Yeah. You know, equally saying that, I think because I did have that, Um, you know, financial support. I think it stopped me pushing myself quicker and further. Although Mm. I did have like seven interviews for fashion assistant jobs and all of them said that I was overqualified for the role even though I'd never had a job. What? Yeah. So this is another like massive eye opener. And it, it says a lot about women. It says a lot about the fashion industry. But basically... I ended up taking all of my qualifications off my CV and then I got a job.
0: I was just about to say, was it because <laughs> you had a master's?
1: Well, you know, I got 10A stars, 4A, yeah. 3A level. Like, I when you look at me on paper, I yeah. look like I'm going to come in and think that I rule the roost. Too good for this. I'm too good for this. I won't get my hands dirty. And mm. I think that... We forget, you know, you, you go all the way through school striving and pushing yourself and you forget like there is a, the other side of the coin to that, that it, it almost makes you look as though, you, you know, you don't have the ability to maybe have common sense. Yeah. Um, and again, that you won't get your hands dirty. And that wasn't the case. And I definitely didn't have the confidence that I think people would associate with that kind of CV. Yeah. You know, I did everything. I washed my editor's socks in a sink once. You know, and air dried them with a hairdryer in a toilet. (laughs) That
0: is (laughs) the most devil wears prada thing. It is. It is. And
1: I was in no way up myself. Or uh, you know, I was so I would have done anything. But yeah, and plus the the fashion industry often works that the person's already got the job before the, the interview actually happens. And you learn that after a while, like there's someone sitting waiting for that job, but for HR purposes they have to advertise it and get three or four people in. You know, it's it it's quite often a very closed when it comes to hiring new people.
0: That's what I've heard I think yeah, anecdotally.
1: It is, and that's really tough because it means the same kind of people end up getting hired every time. Um, I do get it though because it's an un- you know incredibly pressurized job. You've got a very short amount of time, there's not very much money in it and people can really let you down. Like I probably had about 100 interns over my career. And at least a third of them didn't make it through the first week. And that's not because they were fired. They just didn't turn up. Really? Yeah. Yeah. It's it's you can't believe like you would think everyone in the world is desperate for this opportunity, Mm. but it's not the truth. And quite often it will be people that have maybe emailed you 10 times and you're like, my God, this girl's so keen. It's going to be amazing. And then they they just don't like it, you know, because it's not very glamorous.
0: (laughs) And especially, I suppose, if you're not being paid either in a lot of the cases. Exactly.
1: And, you know, or maybe you have to be tough, Mm. you know, and it's it's not just about talent. It's so much about tenacity and resilience and being able to take the knocks of maybe someone looked at you a bit funny or maybe all the other girls have got a Celine handbag. And, Mm. you know, it's it that side of things is really difficult, especially when you don't come from that background. It can be hugely intimidating. You know, if you're commuting each way, the whole thing, it's like it can really, really get to you emotionally, I think. And I think we forget like that, you know, and it's it's understandable why people kind of crack quite mm. quickly under that environment. You know, mad things do happen with interns and stuff. You know, at one point, someone took 11 pairs of Labutan shoes when I was working. Stole on a them. Marathon. Yeah, stole them, you know, and you're responsible for that as well and um, so you know it's it's really easy to to be like it's terrible that these you know editors are hiring people that they've probably worked for for 6 months and really trust mm. but like from the other side i totally understand
0: that as yeah. well you know you need reliable people
1: you need reliable people who you know are like really in it that will work with you and let's be honest, you have chemistry with because you're going to be spending so much time together. And also you need people who see it as a career as opposed to just like a ticket to glamorous stuff. Exactly. Because, you know, if that's what you want to do, then, you know, do another career. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, or, you know, find another way to get those tickets because <laughs> it is, it's the, what you're going
0: to have to put in to get those tickets is not worth it. <laughs> um, and, I mean, it sounds like, by all accounts, from what I've heard from other people and also what you've said, and, you know, you were commuting, you know, all this distance, early yeah. years, doing lots of sort of more lowly jobs and not yeah. being paid. Sounds really gruelling. I want to ask, at what point did you start enjoying working in the fashion industry? Or did you enjoy it right from the get-go?
1: There was always something that I enjoyed. I think that I've got a a slight level of masochism going on anyway. (laughs) (laughs) To be honest, it's like it's not worth it unless it's hard. Yeah, There's definitely something. So I definitely often think that I found enjoyment from achieving something that I knew not many people could you know like that that I'd uh, you know reached a feat and I think it took me a long long time to be honest with myself about that to be like are you in actually enjoying the work or do you enjoy more what it represents to Mm. both your sense of esteem and to society at large Mm. you know Um, and I think that's just about maturity to be honest you know Because how many of us start off in careers at the beginning that are based not necessarily on enjoying every part of the work,
0: you know? Totally. I mean, I started out my career working in advertising. Yeah. And I think for a while, especially early on, like advertising, it's not as glamorous as fashion. But, Mm. you know, it's a kind of creative media job. There are these perks and these, you know, client dinners and parties and you know, oh gosh, I've been having this expensive dinner for six hours, Mm -hmm. you know, a long lunch that's gone on until the evening and like your friends are actually just working in an office and you feel a bit smug and a bit proud and like Instagram, look at me, I'm doing this and this is work, I'm being paid to do this. It feels quite glamorous, but yeah, I think after a while... I it got to the point where I didn't want to tell people I worked in advertising I just remember that flip from mm. when I first started out I was so proud of proud, it yeah. and then I just remember there came a point where I didn't want to tell people that yeah and I took that as a real symbol as you're really not enjoying this anymore
1: definitely and I wrote in the book that I've got coming out that there's a whole chapter on career and money and I write I, I wrote a lot about You can visualise and imagine what someone's actual day-to-day is. But unless you work next to them as a colleague, you've got no idea, Mm. (laughs) you know. You've got no idea how their boss speaks to them. You've got no idea what actual opportunities they've got going. And, you know, I was posting pictures to Facebook of me at amazing champagne events. But I spent my days packing up clothes and putting pink dockets, writing them out in a bag mm. and I did that for nearly two years
0: yeah. <laughs> you know but people see like the highlights real. of course
1: they do but not even the highlights were like it was so dramatically different mm. it it, it <laughs> almost like a lie yeah <laughs> you know it uh, I don't know what to say about it like if 99% of what you do for work isn't that one thing that you're presenting I'm not sure that you're really being honest. Yeah, no, I think that's I mean, I think that's really honest
0: of you now to say that, but I definitely agree with that. I mean yeah. I kind of want to find that a bit more about what you kind of do now yeah. and how your career progressed because I think you then went from you know being a fashion assistant then you got some pretty serious editorial yeah. roles
1: you know like my, my career really I mean I, there were lots of stops and starts mm-hmm. I moved on to be a features assistant at Sunday Times Style because I really realised I wanted to be a writer and not a stylist okay. and I think the moment I realised that was when I was on a shoot it was really glamorous and all I cared about was what was for lunch Okay. <laughs> so you know when you start looking at the menu before you're interested in the shoes and models, I think, you know, probably not the gig for you. Anyway, so I got that job um, and then it got to a dead end, Mm -hmm. to be wildly honest. Um, So I was getting married. My ex-husband also worked at News International as a journalist. So we decided that we were going to Upsticks sticks and quit everything and mm. moved to South Africa <laughs> oh wow <laughs> yeah. so we did that for a while and it didn't work out and then I came back not tail between my legs but a little bit like like am I ever going to work in fashion again yeah um and I ended up getting a job setting up the fashion and beauty division of a um trend forecasting agency
0: oh okay that's amazing
1: Yes, it was amazing but obviously none of the perks none of the glitz none of that but it, it there was still a lot of travel mm. um, and it's very cerebral like it's it was yeah. and it was and it was like cross-disciplinary mm-hmm. and there were so many smart people working there and it was like an eye-opener I learned so much mm. um, and on one of the trips I ended up meeting the fashion director of Grazia and it so happens there was a, a position of vacancy that came up a couple of months ago and we'd had some really interesting conversations and she said let's continue them would you come in for an interview Mm. and I got the job and I was 28 and that was to be senior fashion news and features editor of Grazia which was quite the coup at the time because really I'd only really just been an assistant but you know I had a lot of broader experience, I guess, than a lot of other people mm. coming to the to the interview. And I had an absolute ball for three years. I love those women. Mm. Um, it was like being on one long hem party. <laughs> it really was the best time. Don't get me wrong, there were some terrible times as well and like some dodgy things went down, mm. contractual things and, you know, all that
0: kind of... Working in media.
1: Working in media, you know... I also got divorced during those three years. So, you know, add that to the mix. <laughs> but in general, like they were uh, the most amazing women. It was like a warm hug of support Yeah. Um. when, you know, I had my pretty bad months. And, uh, you know, I, I loved that job. Yeah. I really did. And I look back on it and that is probably the job that like made me. Made me, if we say, and you know, inverted commas. It made people know who I was. Yeah. my byline meant something, and mm. um, you know, I had amazing opportunities there. I, you know, you could go out for breakfast, lunch, and dinner every night of the week and meet people. Mm. So I basically did. I and after my divorce, I had a whole. I read, you know, that book, Year of Yes, and um, I basically did that. Mm. That was my thing. That if anyone offered me any opportunity to do anything. And that ended up going so far as dates as well. Um, I just said yes to everything. Okay. So I ended up traveling the world and, you know, having these amazing
0: experiences. It's exhausting. I was about to say, did you, you know. ever feel burnout? Because I think sometimes a thing that I do now is I say no mm. to a lot of things. Yeah. But I always sometimes wonder, should I be doing the opposite? Should I be saying yes yeah, to everything? Yeah, I mean, it's hard. I
1: think you have to, like, recalibrate mm. all the time. Mm. But I think that I... I'd been held back in some ways Mm. by things that were going on in my private life. And also, I have to be absolutely honest, I am an extrovert. I get my energy from other people. So Mm. to be in that environment, like, I love it. Mm. I love a drink. I love a chat. I like engaging with other women. Mm. And, you know, we're so fortunate to be in an industry where you've got people that have lived the life less ordinary, you know, people that come from... All around the world to be in London to be part of this you know amazing creative industry um, it's
0: not bo- it's not full of boring people it isn't
1: it's not like you're going to you know a conference on the edge of the M25 and staying <laughs> in a you know holiday inn
0: you know it isn't. so true no 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 it's really true it's
1: you know and equally like being on your own again after having been with someone for a long time is really lonely mm. and Okay, by the end of it, I definitely needed to take a break from all that saying yes.
0: But having but, but having you know. that the opportunity to do that, I can imagine, like you say, after a big breakup, after yeah. a divorce, that is yeah. having something to do exactly, like something to throw yourself into. Work was
1: the cure; mm. it really was. And um, I, you know, I will forever be grateful for the people that, that were there for me professionally and for the job itself. But, you know, after a certain amount of time, the penny then started to drop because I was only being paid pennies. Um, <laughs> you know, that I was then in my 30s and I had this, like, eureka moment, not eureka moment, but, you know, a, a Damascene moment, to say, that I was, you know, I was working, I was heading out to stay in, like, a ridiculous penthouse suite somewhere mm. it was either New York or Tokyo mm. something oh like somewhere so glamorous <laughs> yeah because that was what my life was no, I can imagine. <laughs> you know it was really fabulous back then it's not quite the same today but you know anyway yeah. and um I had a really bad toothache mm-hmm. and I went to the dentist mm-hmm. and they were like you need a root canal and I couldn't afford it and I had to call my dad and ask him for money and I was like nearly 31 okay. and you know I'm operating at the top for my game living this like amazing champagne lifestyle I've got 50 pairs of high heels in Mm. my you know rented accommodation yes but you know nice you know blah 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 all of that stuff um you know but I couldn't afford to have my teeth sorted out and you know at some point living for like you know the content or the glitz or the glamour you know, it does become financially irresponsible because mm. at the end of the day, I shouldn't be asking another man to pay the bill for my teeth in my yeah. 30s. Like, obviously, it's my dad and he cares about me. But, you know... I can't feel great. It, it didn't feel great, you know. And I I felt that I put so much work in mm. um, and busted my gut to get to where I was. But, you know, I was an adult at that point. I wasn't 25, 26. Mm. And... I was like, OK, I got I to gotta make a decision. And I remember sitting at my desk with this job that I loved and thinking, if I'm still at this desk looking at this computer in three years' time, I'm not going to have any of the things I want. Mm. And those things were a house that I owned, a child, um, and, you know, not be like in absolute worry every time that i get to the end of the month because we we'll have that, an emergency yeah, that comes exactly. up exactly because you know i used to have to think if i wanted a, a cup of coffee or buy a magazine like that's mm. the scenario that we're in and not that that's you know an an insane thing so many people live mm. like that but i just don't think anyone could have ever believed that that's that's kind of where i was in my early 30s mm. because the the way it looked from the outside was that you know, I was wearing £1,800
0: dresses
1: mm. and carrying these ridiculous designer Was, was
0: that because you, <laughs> if you don't mind me asking, was that because you spent your money on those no, things? No, I was gifted it all okay. or lent
1: it all okay. or, you know, bonkers, absolutely mm. bonkers when you kind of think of the... And I think that that the disparity between my real life and the the perceived life mm. at that point added on top, I guess what I guess other people thought of my relationship as well in comparison to the reality of what it was that was I guess the defining moment for me I think going forward for my career mm. and it's where everything comes from from my website and everything comes from from my book really mm. of that moment of being like Hang on a minute.
0: Something ain't, it ain't right here. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and I want to get into that disparity and talk about the social media aspect of yeah. things in your book in a second, yeah. but just very quickly. To finish the story. Yeah, sorry, where did you go? Sorry. No, no, no. I love these so, tendons. Where did you go I after I started up my own, um,
1: my own company? Okay, um, doing what? And so while I was at Grazia, I'd started to do quite a lot of kind of ambassadorial side of things. Um, the editor had said I had to set up an Instagram account. So that's why I have one. Um, till then, I'd been working on a Blackberry. Um, and I had never been involved in that side of things Okay. so the only reason that I am an influencer now is because my editor at Grazia made me
0: okay (laughs) I was going to ask about that actually my next question was when did you first start using social media and was that just for personal no it was always work my name was um at Catherine
1: Grazia wow okay so it was completely to do with work Mm -hmm. um and I'd been started doing like lots of in-store events and helping write um, promotional copy for like the um, you know promotion pages mm. at the back of the was magazines. that freelance work? No, no, it was all part of your job. Okay, got it. You know, working on brand and content for Grazia. Exactly. Okay. So I think sometimes we got a bit of extra money, but mm. it was probably about the the 0.1 of whatever they got for that project. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's kind of standard for. Mm. And, you know, this was at the time that your magazine or title that you worked for, they owned you. You know, you couldn't go and write for another magazine or write for an online website or mm. take a picture for Bowden or mm. whatever. You know, you couldn't you couldn't do that, mm. even though you were working with these brands every day within your capacity. Mm. Like your your magazine, they owned everything, all your output.
0: Well, in a way, and especially now, and we'll talk about this mm-hmm. a little bit more later on, but in a way, Influencers are now competing with magazines for their ad money. Of
1: course they are. But anyway, regardless, I've been writing a lot of this kind of, um, you know, advertorial copy Mm -hmm. and been really involved in quite big projects. And I just started to really realise that, you know, there were like 16, 20 magazines that I could have got a job on. Mm -hmm. But there are like 500,000 brands that were all about to need words because everyone's website you know was starting to become a huge driver for their business one job that i've missed out is that i was the first actually yeah i was one of the first online writers at matchesfashion.com when they set that up that was my first out of university proper job um so i'd always had like a bit of digital copy but that was like saying this shoe's got a four inch heel and is great for a party and segues (laughs) from blah 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 you know it was copywriting so I know there are a lot of copywriters out there who that, that's how they're starting their career so mm. I just want to say to you it won't always be that way that's
0: so yeah I'm sure a lot of people will be reassured to hear
1: that <laughs> anyway so but I, I started to realize that you know what I think the fashion industry journalists across the board have all kind of missed is that this is an amazing boom time for us mm. We can't be journalists in quite the same way that we thought we were going to be, but our skills across visuals and words are now so important to the way you know brands make their money. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there are lucrative opportunities out there. So I set up um, a company. It's called the Fashion Content Agency, and I basically. Collaborate and consult with brands. Um, and that can be everything from writing all of their Instagram captions to coming up with, um, you know, bigger projects that they might work with on with influencers to putting together a journal, say, for their website mm-hmm. and just really advising across digital content and copy.
0: And do you still run that now? I still do that now, okay. yeah.
1: So I, I've continued doing that. Um, and you know, within a year, I was making nearly three times my editorial salary.
0: OK, so that's a turn up for the books. Yeah.
1: And I knew, like, I knew in my gut that there was something there. Mm. It just took a while to have the guts to go and do it.
0: Can I ask, actually, in terms of making that transition, yeah. did you have, say, work and clients lined up before leaving Grazia? No, <laughs> no, 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 of I course never not. I have. No. I've always,
1: like, jumped. Mm. and I'm a really cautious person so mm. I can't explain it it's almost like I have Jerry Maguire moments <laughs> you know, like somewhere you push it, you push it and then you just snap and you're like, no, I can't do this anymore and you have these kind of weird two weeks where you scream cry at your mum down the phone like, stop stop, don't panic and then right, you put your outfit on and you get on with your day and you make it happen. Mm, Because you know what? you got rent to pay. you got
0: no choice. That's exactly how I ended up quitting my last full-time job of just, like, I think probably like you, I was very much of the, like, career-climbing mindset and I was going to work hard, get a promotion, get a pay rise, Take you know, the idea of quitting a job without having a job to go to next was not within my mindset. The idea of freelancing... Well, self-employment. I was like, that's not for people like me. No. But then I was just so frustrated with my then job that I just, I, I quit without having anywhere yeah. to go. I think I decided one morning, I just woke up, I told mom I'm quitting my job today. And she was like, you don't have another job lined up. I know. I, like, exactly I know. think
1: what my family said. You yeah. Know? Because I think that, that, you know, that has always been the culture that you have to have something else or mm. else... You know, equally, I think there is something to be said for the fact that I'm not a snob. And Mm. if the jobs hadn't come in, I could have, I would have gone back to retail, you know, like even though I'd worked on magazines and done all this travel and been swanky, Mm. I would have still worked the shop floor Mm. if, you know.
0: If you needed to, you had a backup plan just to make ends meet. You know, even
1: if that had been a a Saturday job or Mm. a Sunday job, you know, and like, I think that you have to have that in you, mm. you know, because you don't know how it's going to go and you mm. do still have rent to pay. Yeah, So you can't be a fantasist about things. You mm. have to have, like, your plan B. Or savings. Or savings. But equally, I I think it's not great to, to drill through savings either. Mm. Like, if you're not earning for a, for a month, mm. you need to go and sort that out. Yeah, no, true. That's you know? definitely the case and with me. And that's, that's not, like saying that I think people are quite proud and the idea of taking a step back is something that sticks in people's throat, but you're taking a step back to, to whiz forward. You know, it isn't like starting all over again. It isn't. It's, it's consolidating your position before you skyrocket to the next thing. And I think that's really, really important to remember.
0: That's such a positive spin on it because I think you're so right in that there is this fear of, maybe having to take a slightly more junior position yeah. or go to the start of it. You know, if you're trying to, there's no point in climbing up a ladder that you don't want to be on. There is sometimes not. you have to go to like exactly. the bottom of a new ladder. Exactly. But I've always had that fear as well. But once I've done it, I've realised that it's been so fruitful since. I'm yep. like, why didn't I do this sooner? It, yeah, it, you have to forget the ladder.
1: Like mm. careers are a roller coaster. Mm. You've got no idea what's around the corner. And that's mm. in a positive and positive opportunities and like negative Feelings of failure, like I've been sacked. You know, it's not great, but you get up the next day, maybe sad about it. Then you roll. You know, you've you've got to got to have that, and that's why I always say, like, when people are like, what do you need to succeed in this business? And it, the only word is resilience. Mm. You know, because nothing is ever going to be perfect. the The business that you work for could go under. You yeah. know, like the environment could change. There could be a recession. You know, your boss might relocate somewhere and someone else will come in and they'll be awful to you. Mm. You, you have to be able to roll with the punches and not believe that there's some preordained, um, you know, route to success because it's just not the case.
0: Yeah. And I want to move on now to talking yep. about social media and yep. more specifically about the book, which mm-hmm. to everyone listening to this, by the way, I'm halfway through reading it. I, would admit I haven't <laughs> finished it yet, but it is amazing. Wow, I was desperate you. to read this as soon as it was announced that Catherine was writing it and it really hasn't disappointed. Like it's, I think the thing I love most about it is how honest it is and I think that's really rare from coming from you know people working in media often tend to kind of be a bit opaque about how things work people working within fashion journalism people who are influencers I think sometimes are not as honest about things as they could be and something that I really respect about you and in the book and actually in terms of our interactions before Mm -hmm. is that you're always really really honest and I mean just kind of starting with the beginning of social media and your relationship with it yeah at what point did you first realize that you could make money from social media not sort of working with other brands as you talked about, you know, yeah. creating editorial content for them, but in your own right as an influencer. So it was the same time that I left Grazia. Okay. And by that point, I
1: think I had about 5,000 followers. So mm-hmm. still very much in the micro environment. Not mm-hmm. that, you know, I've got hundreds of thousands now, but, mm-hmm. you know, um, it was really at the beginning. And it was, I guess, based more on my relationships as a journalist. Mm-hmm. After I left um I thought it was really, really important for me to go to Fashion Week, to do it properly, to do New York, to do Paris, to be really involved with it, to keep myself, you know, my face still. Yes, exactly. But obviously that means accommodation and flights and, you know, it's, it's really expensive to put yourself through Fashion Week. So... You know, and obviously if brands aren't hosting you, the the biggest girls get hosted. The biggest girls that can afford their accommodation and flights get it all for free. Whereas when you're hustling at the bottom, you know you've gotta pay every penny. <laughs> so I started reaching out to and you know, this is all really proto. it's super early in mm-hmm. the whole shtick. Um, I started reaching out to some friends and saying, look, I'm coming to New York. And they were like, oh, actually, we've got this event on. Do you need accommodation? Because you also have to remember at the beginning, these are all old school PRs who've only ever worked with print journalists. Mm -hmm. And the whole influencer economy exploded. And they didn't know anyone from Adam. Mm. (laughs) You know, like suddenly they're being asked to find on brand Um, ambassadors to be involved with collaborations and how are they meant to know Mm. you know so I guess I leveraged um, you know my background and relationships my network to kind of start that all off and it all just really organically rolled from mm. there. Um, I took on a role uh, at Glamour magazine as um, a fashion features editor at large. so I helped like I help coverage with them for fashion weeks and um, you know i I'm I could manage to do that on the side of my business because mm. obviously you prioritize whatever work you have to do, but mm. that's that is the beauty mm. of. Going off on your own is that you can, you know, be very flexible and time manage, and um, you know, start having this portfolio multi hyphenate career, um, and that's really where all the influencer thing started. Mm. It started to build, and um, you know. It, that was really great. Like, it was an amazing, amazing thing to be like, I didn't have to be Catherine from Grazia. I could just be Catherine.
0: And people want you just yeah. for you. Yeah, yeah no, that they, is they'd really invite exciting. me to things yeah. and, you know,
1: offer to host me in a
0: hotel for a night. Like, it was mind-blowing. It is so mind-blowing. When, I mean, I haven't had anything quite like that. No one's inviting me to Fashion Week yet, although if anybody wants to, I'm here. <laughs> but I think suddenly when you are given free things or yeah. hosted or flown places... And people seem happy to do that. And you're mentally calculating how much is this costing? I, yeah, of course. If I were to pay for this, it yeah. just suddenly, it can really kind of take your breath away. But it then can. these brands and some of these companies just have shed loads of cash.
1: They do. And like I think at the beginning, the, the smartest brands stuck with people that they really like understood Mm. their you know their integrity and um their aesthetic mm. i think there was definitely a very dodgy couple of years where brands were like oh we just need the person with the highest number yeah. sitting on this front row and they it all became very like what like that girl's got like the naffest taste in mm. the world and somehow she's you know that's fine mm. but people have their people and mm. they, they weren't their people mm. <laughs> yeah no completely and it's
0: you know then you have to look at things like engagement and are people actually exactly. you know if if the aim for these brands working with influencers is to kind of drive, you know, sales, which yeah. they're kind of longer or to build the brand. Yeah, is course. anyone actually paying attention to yeah. your brand as a result of yeah, this collaboration? exactly. And,
1: you know, like it's it's really understanding demographics. And, and you know, I've, I feel just as much for fashion and lifestyle PRs as I do for journalists because our industry absolutely flipped over. Overnight, mm. you know, and we were suddenly meant to have all these new connections and skills and understanding of how things worked. And, you know, not a lot of people were even on Instagram at this yeah. point. You it's know? also
0: about being an early adopter. I was it about is. to say, do you it think is. that has in any way contributed? Massively. If I had to, had started my
1: Instagram two years ago, I, there's no way I'd have built this following. Things obviously changed massively because there wasn't an algorithm at the beginning. Mm. You know, just when I, you know, I, everyone saw all my pictures. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. <laughs> now, like, if I put something up that's a bit more niche, they're not going to see that picture. I want to talk about that, actually,
0: because one one of the things that you um, talked about in your book at length, and I think kind of a huge message of the book, and I'm sure you're going to get this question a lot, mm-hmm. one of the key takeaways from your book is around how much of what we see on social media is fake. Yeah. And how people are able to make their lifestyles seem a lot more glamorous than they actually are. Like, you gave this really great example that I loved about how. I didn't even know people did this, but you know how sometimes people like nip into the lobby of a fancy hotel and take photos of themselves yep. to make it look like they're staying there. It had not even occurred to me that that was a way of faking things. Like I, I was like, you know, I once said to my friend, "Look, if I wanted to, I could go into Selfridges, ask, to look at a Prada bag, take a strategic photo that made it look as though it's my Prada bag, and yep. no one would know." Yep. And I was like, "Yeah, I can think of that," but the hotel lobby thing just really took me back because I. Well, what about that thing that I found out about
1: IKEA being used for people's Tinder pictures? Oh, I yeah. mean, that absolutely made me die that people were going into Ikea and pretending that that was their home like the the show
0: But also, I was like, that's really smart. I, I like, mean, exactly. You know, you could live in
1: an absolute crack den, but go to Ikea and be like, hey, here's my Hemnes wardrobe or whatever, you
0: know? It's like the tags hanging off.
1: Exactly. Um, See, but you can you can edit those out. Oh, so. well, there you go.
0: There's, there's Facetune and Photoshop for all of that. Um, now you know all the secrets. But, you know, sort of going back to that, is I think one of the messages of the book is that, you know, you're obviously primarily focused on the perils of social media and the consumerism. And yet... Part of your job as an influencer is to kind of create aspirational content yeah, that course. encourages people to buy things. And so I suppose, you know, a more cynical person than I am who maybe doesn't have an yeah, understanding of these industries would say that that's quite contradictory.
1: Yeah, I totally get that. But look, this is the thing. I've always said that there's space for fantasy in life. There mm. really is. And if I hadn't read fashion magazines or seen those amazing clothes in Harvey Nichols like I would never have had this amazing life that Mm. I've had you know there's nothing wrong with aspiration Mm. if if I hadn't aspired to have a different life I'd still be living you know in my small area in my small world Mm. and that's absolutely fine if that's what people want then fantastic but that was never what I wanted you know those images that I saw in fashion magazines, they made me dream and imagine a different life for myself. And I don't think that we should ever, like, say there's something wrong with aspiration or Mm. wrong with ambition or wrong with escapism because Mm. there's not. It's just we need to know what it is, like take it for what it is, you know, that we need to be honest about that is Mm. really what we're presenting here. And I think one thing that we've lost with kind of like the heyday of magazines being over is that yes you used to have those amazing fashion images but then you'd flip the page and you'd have a real life feature Mm. about maybe someone who'd lost their husband Mm. or gone through cancer or whatever so you'd read a magazine and you'd yes dream but you'd also be you know made to feel like god I'm really lucky for Mm. what I've got Mm. the problem is that social media now only shows the fantasy Mm. And we, we haven't like had time to educate ourselves for the fact that, you know, it ain't real, you know. And I, I think so for me, my whole feeling about it is that I don't want to undermine the escapism and the fantasy and the aspiration because I think that has been the story of my life. Mm. I just want to be really honest about it and let younger women know that, yes, you can go off and have amazingly glamorous life or a really successful career but don't think it's going to be seamless because it's not don't think it comes for free because it doesn't never forget how much hard work goes into the back end of everything you know nothing is going to be easy and I think as long as I feel that over like overall that that's the message that comes off from my digital footprint then I feel really comfortable with the fact that I still also take pretty pictures
0: yeah no i don't totally understand that and i think obviously writing this kind of book is part of yeah exactly and god like the reason
1: that i set up my website is because of that that feeling of guilt to yeah. be wildly honest
0: can you tell me a little bit more about so it's work, work work.co
1: yes. can you tell me a little bit more about that so i like in exactly that way that kind of like internal contradiction I had started to feel really uncomfortable with the message that I was putting out on social media Mm -hmm. that like life is all a party Mm -hmm. um and I was like I went on an amazing holiday with a bunch of really successful women and we were all sitting on the beach taking these ridiculously glamorous photos in expensive bikinis and you know staying at beautiful hotels like there's nothing wrong with that Mm. every woman there grafted and you know had built a business or worked her way up in a career she deserves to have a good time and Mm. spend her money exactly how she wants Mm. but half of us have been on our phone over the the trip speaking to the office like one of us was going through terrible heartbreak you know we'd all had not so great things going on in our life but we only showed one side yeah you know, and as I was laying there on my sun lounger, <laughs> you know, in my three hundred pound bikini, <laughs> I started to feel like actually quite physically sick about it. Like there was a nausea. Like, what? What am I doing here? Mm. Like, I feel like the the honesty, that side of things, kind of bursts from within without really a, a thought about it. Yeah. I was like, I at the time, I really wanted to set up a website as like a hub for all of my work. Mm. And I was like, it can't just be a website of pictures of me. Firstly, I felt like I was a bit old for that. And I, mean, I know I don't that's, think ridiculous. that's true. I know, but like I did, I, you know, I was in my early to mid 30s. I wasn't a 17 year old girl, you know. <laughs> and still, I think that even back then, there was still this feeling that it was a younger person's game. Things are changing so much, you know. Mm. You only have to look at the hashtag over50 to mm. see how many amazingly stylish women have got involved. But that it wasn't the case, yeah. you know. Anyway, so we we all started it became a big topic of discussion for the, the holiday and we were all talking about the, the all the different ways that we work on ourselves and that could be, you know in the gym, it could be in the office, it could be in a relationship with our partners or with our children or with ourselves. You know, um, it, it all is hard work. So that's where the name for the website came from: work, work, yeah. work. There's not just one type of work that you yeah. have to do as a, a woman to be happy. You know, and. What I wanted it to be was a platform where women who worked in really aspirational careers or in social media could talk about the less photogenic sides of their lives. Mm. So whether that's struggling through illness or caring for parents or having body issues or whatever, um, just narratives that have fallen out of cultural conversation, especially within this glamorous world. Um, so yeah and then you know through my work I've got an amazing network of other social media influencers who lots of them are now involved in the book but you know they all had this kind of internal feeling of a bit ickiness as well and they wanted to not set the record straight but just be a little bit more honest about some things you know and you know, they let me interview them and they talked about things and they were really honest and yeah. that, that it that was an amazing, amazing thing. Like I am so grateful for them to have given me the opportunity to share their stories. And then I set the website up and it was just huge. Like the response was massive. Yeah. Um, because no one had really been saying this. That it was the it's the only thing still really in this space like it. Yeah. So
0: and actually, so I think that is kind of a common thread between the website and also the book is that you speak to, you know, like I say, these sort of influencers, some really, really successful women, lots of really successful women. Oh. And they reveal things that I think to me were certainly surprising, even though I kind of know how this industry works mm-hmm. and I kind of know how media and fashion works. What was the most surprising thing, either in the book or on the website, what was the most surprising thing that you've discovered that you would just never have guessed from looking at someone's social media feed?
1: Oh, so many things. To be honest, like it, as you say, when you're in it enough, like nothing really surprises you. Because mm. I've sat next to these women at dinners for years, and I've I've heard you know the ins and outs of their relationship struggle. All mm. of um, a sudden, you know, I I knew some of what was coming. Like I think a lot of the conversations that you have with people, and you realize how much of an impact this industry can have on your mental and physical health not just mental health but physical health as well how many like you know health problems have have come from from living this lifestyle where you're traveling the whole time and you run yourself into the ground and then you come home at night and you look on Instagram and you compare yourself to all of your peers and you're then not sleeping very well. And then you wake up in the morning and you look at your phone and do that again and mm. feel terrible about yourself. And then maybe you don't go to the gym and maybe you don't make the best choice. Or maybe you do go to the gym and you're only going there to get the six pack to compete with. blah <laughs> You know, it's like this yeah. <laughs> type feeling of, yeah. uh, you know, uh, uh, and the fact that everyone discusses um, feelings of comparison. Yeah. Like that is across the board there is not one woman that i've interviewed who hasn't said that she looks at other people and sometimes it makes her feel bad about herself so i think that that that's something that everyone can speak to um and there's nothing wrong with that like you know social comparison theory it's it's been known for years and years and years we used to do it with advertising in the 50s mm. you know People would look to the royals back in, you know, other ages and compare their waist size <laughs> to, you know, Empress Josephine or whatever. You know, it's 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 in our human nature to compare ourselves to other people. And normally in life, you walk along the street and there are people that are in a worse position than you and a, a better position and you... Tally those two sides of things, um, you know, to to find your own sense of where your position is within society or within your community. The problem with social media is that it strips away all of the people that are doing worse than you. Because even if they really are, they pretend that they're not. Mm. So all you see is people that are seemingly doing better than you. And that gives you such a flawed perspective of your position in a community. You see yourself you know as far further down the rungs than you actually are Um, and I think that is probably the biggest overriding theme of everything that I talk about with women Mm. body comes up a lot too
0: Mm. and you also have access to more to other communities like you you know 50 years ago you wouldn't have been able to see what the exactly. lifestyle of a journalist in New York looked no. like and now you can.
1: Or the, the rich and famous or, you know, celebrities, you yeah. know, there was
0: a mystery around it.
1: Yes, you knew they had like a private jet, but you didn't know what the private jet looked like inside or how often they used it, <laughs> you know. So true. It's, it's a completely and even though we probably at this point all know that we should be taking it by a pinch of salt with mm. a pinch of salt even It's really difficult when you repeatedly see these images to not internalise them to some extent. Mm. Even if you're, like, a super engaged, intelligent person in that community, it it gets to you. You're only human. You're only human. And, you know, if you're shown a picture enough, um, you know, if you're barraged of, you know, these these beautiful lifestyles, you you start to believe that
0: everyone else is having a much better time than you, you know, and it's not the case. Completely. And I want to ask you kind of, in your more sort of, I guess, professional strategic opinion, the kind of influencer world or the influencer model, Mm -hmm. um, do you feel like it's a bubble? Do you feel like it's going to burst? Where do you think it's going? Look, it's so difficult
1: to know. Like, I think people are starting to realise... They're either starting to think that influencers should be treated a bit more like a catalogue and Mm. that working with someone should only happen if you get return on investment. So the metrics are all there much more now. So you can see how much each influencer actually sells. Um, And I think that I totally get that from a business perspective. If you're investing, you want to see what the return is. However, other brands are saying, yes, we've got our division for that, but then we've got an, another division that we were going to work with women who have created these amazing worlds and mm-hmm. brands and aesthetics and we want to associate ourselves with them to position our brand in a certain way. So it's almost like you've got a, a, a two types of influencers now, women that can really help sell your products and women that can really help, um, you know, change people's opinions, so it's like a marketing and sales you know they're two sides of the influencer coin now and I guess to an extent young women that are getting into it have to decide which one they want to be um you know because if you decide that it's all about positioning then you have to really go all guns blazing and not work with certain brands and not take certain pictures you know be very very curated and disciplined with this world that you want to create because it's a brand. Mm. Whereas I think women that really have the power to influence people's spending decisions, it's much more about a 360 being fully immersed and in, in, involved in someone's life. Mm. So it is about revealing more about your, your real life, who you are, your family, all mm. of that kind of stuff because people want to believe in you. Um, and, you know,
0: so I guess they're, they're two different types of influence, really. I think that's a really brilliant distinction actually because even as you're describing it i can kind of think of you know the influences that i follow that i'm aware of i can instantly divide them into those two camps and whether or not they've made that decision consciously that is a real not split but i can see that distinction emerging they're they're
1: just different um functions of the the platforms you know of, of that media um so and you know back in the day brands would have wanted to have something in Fabulous magazine as well as in Vogue magazine, you mm. know, because Vogue would be the positioning and then Fabulous would be you get a much broader scope, more people read it, but you know, it, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that that's really where it's going to go from, like, the money side of it, from the brand side of it. In terms of where I think it's going to go for just your regular punter, regular user, I think everyone is very slowly becoming much more aware of what's going on. Mm. They understand that maybe it's not good for them, that some of the things that they're seeing aren't real. Um, they understand that people are being paid for things. Mm. Uh, <laughs> you know, like the the naivety is wearing off, mm. I think um, and that can make people really angry, mm. like there's a lot of rage around social media as well, and people getting angry with certain women for representing their lives and Others saying that it, you know, it's, it's non-representative because they're a middle-class white woman, yeah. for example. But you know, what are they? What are they meant to do? Go and pretend they live in another house and yeah. fake a different lifestyle yeah. to appeal to more people. You yeah. know, it's really difficult. And again, we all have to remember that it's horses for courses. You don't have to follow everyone. Well, that's the truth. You should isn't only it? follow people that you identify with or connect with. Yeah. Um, And if you don't like something that someone's doing, you know, you don't ever have to see it again. And I think that, you know, that hopefully will be the message instead of us all railing against each other for not representing our life experience. Because obviously everyone's different, Mm. you know. Um, And, you know, I I, I don't follow 17 year old girls at school because it's not relevant to my life, you know, unless one is in my family or something. Yeah. Um, And they probably don't follow me. They don't, I know, for demographics. <laughs> you know. It's very honest. Um, but, you know, it's it that, that I think is also really important. Like,
0: you know, it, not everyone has to be everything to everyone, yeah. <laughs> you know. That's very true. And just to kind of wrap up, I want to talk a bit about productivity and work and social media yeah. because you said something in the book that really spoke to me and you said... Specifically, you said pre-internet, I remember being able to work solidly with no respite for two or even three hours at a yeah. time. Mm. And honestly, I read that and I was like, oh, my God, same. Like just a few days ago, I was saying to someone that I wished I had the work ethic of 17-year-old me because yeah. I was saying, oh, I used to be so hardworking these days. I just can't get anything done. I used to work so wow. hard. And then I, when I read that, I was like, well, actually, that's because... I didn't have social media constantly yeah. distracting me all the time, and then even as I was reading that and making notes about the book because I wanted to obviously to interview you, and even as I thought, right, I'm going to change everything. Five minutes later, I picked up of my course. phone and was scrolling through <laughs> again, and I thought, oh my god, you can't even go five minutes without doing it. No. But I was wondering whether you have any tips or advice. How do you manage that? Because I'm desperate for answers. Yeah,
1: I definitely do. So the 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 big thing that people say that is not your work ethic. <laughs> it's just um, there are different types of attention. So. There's spotlight attention where you just look at one thing and you mm-hmm. deal with it. And then there's floodlight attention where you multitask. Okay. And our brains are basically terrible at multitasking. We are the multitasking generation and we have been sold a con. <laughs> you know, multitasking is not only bad for productivity, it's actually bad for your mental health. So I think it's about culturally starting to have a conversation about we should only be doing one thing at a time. And multitasking isn't some amazing, you know, medal that you should be aspiring for. To be a multitasker actually is should be seen as more of a negative than a positive. Mm. And I think once you get your head around that and you stop thinking, well, I'll do this with this window open, I'll write this, I'll go, and actually, oh, in the middle, I'd better go to the post office and do that, and I've got something cooking in the background. You know, it doesn't just apply to, to work. I think it applies to everything that we do. So by the end of the day, you are left frazzled. You know, you can't think straight. You haven't achieved what you hope you'd achieved. Or if you have, you've just absolutely exhausted yourself. Mm. So definitely, I think one really good thing is about zoning your days mm-hmm. and say if you've got three things to achieve, nine till one, you do one, two till four, you do the other, five till seven, you do that one, mm-hmm. you know, and you don't think that they can all be happening concurrently Yeah, because it will take you longer and it will be of less quality. So I think that's the number one thing. When it comes to the phone, it's really difficult if you work in this industry or any media industry, and you use it to refer to four things. One thing I'd say is you can look up social media accounts on your laptop, on your desktop, so you don't need your phone as well for it. Don't switch devices if you don't have to. Keep to one device. That means putting your phone in Another room. You can have it on loud if you're worried that a call is going to come through and you'll miss it, because that is another thing. Like now, I have a child. Mm. I can't just turn my phone off on silent, Mm. you know, for endless hours, Mm. because what if something terrible had happened? Yeah. So you can, you put it in another room, you close the the door, and you push yourself not to go and have a look at it. There are other things that you can do as well, like quite dramatic things. You can turn your Wi Fi off if you really have to write. Mm. You know, it's totally doable. You can have like wife-free zones of your house. Mm. You know, that's another thing you can have, you know, there are so many ultimate things. But, you know, when it comes down to it, the point is that it's your discipline and it's your control over how you spend your time. Mm. You are the one in control. Like these devices, (laughs) they don't have minds of their own. So it's just being really, really forceful with yourself. And My one piece of advice is do one thing at a time.
0: I think that's a really brilliant and practical note on which to end. Thank you so much for coming into the studio. Thank
1: you for having me.
0: On today's segment of Ask Otega, I've got a letter from a listener dealing with a colleague who she thinks is undermining her because of her gender. Here it is. Dear Otega, I'm really struggling with being consistently undermined by a service provider I've been working with. I'm 33 years old, and the person in question is an older male co-worker who's quite a bit older than me and runs a consultancy business that my company uses. So I'm technically his client, even though it definitely doesn't feel that way. I joined my current team about nine months ago and was introduced to him as a senior team member to whom he should report. However, even though I'm the one he's meant to be advising, he just won't communicate directly with me. On emails, he always addresses my boss, who is also an older man, and just cc's me in, if that. He actually cuts me out of some of the more crucial conversations. And recently, he agreed a meeting with the CEO of a company we work closely with on a date he knew for sure that I definitely couldn't make. When he comes in for quarterly meetings, he spends about 90% of the time looking directly at my boss and speaking to him as if I'm not even in the room. I also know from having spoken to three other female colleagues that he treats them in exactly the same way, much to their frustration. I don't want to jump to conclusions here, but I'm sure you know what I'm thinking. What can I do to bring this guy into the 21st century? You're sincerely fed up of being undermined. Oh my God, how frustrating. I think I got so annoyed when I read this letter because I think I've been, and I'm sure most women listening to this, probably can relate but I've definitely been in in a similar position of being undermined by you know male colleagues who are a bit older who clearly think something like oh she's just a silly little girl um so I can really relate and my blood is boiling just thinking about this scenario um I've had examples of male colleagues talking down to me ignoring me asking me to take notes when they're not even senior to me and yeah like I said I think you're probably not alone in this and this guy in particular sounds like a real prick I think what you need to do there are sort of two things you need to do the first thing is that you need to talk to your boss and have a conversation with him that this is happening. And what you really need to do is kind of bring him into it because, in order to change the situation, you're going to need his kind of explicit support and A, bringing you into the important conversations, and B, communicating to this person that you're actually in charge of the project. So depending on what your relationship with your boss is like, you could either frame it as just a simple workflow issue. It's not productive. You being looped out of key conversations and it's not a good use of his time. You know, that's your job. That's what you're being paid for. I'm sure your boss probably won't be that pleased that essentially you're kind of not being put to good use because this guy is going around you and going straight to him. I think if you've got a good relationship with your boss and you can kind of test the waters and if you think your boss is quite progressive you might want to mention that you do feel like this is partly down to this supplier not trusting you and not wanting to work with you on account of being a younger female and I definitely would cite your colleagues you know your female colleagues experiences and that just to kind of make your argument a bit more robust and make it clear that you're not just taking it really personally but you think this is an ongoing trend like I said I think maybe sound out how receptive your boss would be to that kind of argument but if nothing else just kind of Make it clear that it's a simple process issue. This is disrupting the workflow. It's not an effective or productive way of working. You've been hired and brought into this team in order to lead that relationship. And that's not happening. So that needs to change. And your boss should really hopefully be in your corner on this. And I don't think that they, necess- your boss necessarily needs to have a direct conversation with this person in question. You know, I think there are ways of changing that situation through subtle cues. So when he's emailed or contacted instead of you, he needs to respond to this guy and say, well, actually, this is so-and-so's arena. Um, if you're not copied in, he needs to CC you into these conversations and then bow out of the conversation. You know, if he's continuing to have conversations without you as well, then that is also kind of contributing to the problem. So he needs to really clearly, you know, direct all the emails all the conversations through you and step out and hopefully if he carries on doing that then this service provider will eventually kind of get the point in meetings again he needs to bring you into the conversation you know even if it's saying oh and what do you think or even deferring to you just to kind of show that you are important you're leading this relationship you're leading this project and if he's not doing that or if he's not willing to do that then to be honest your boss is also undermining you just as much as the service provider so I think you can really have a conversation with him and just say look can you just kind of direct all those conversations to me and make it clear that I am the person to handle that. He might need to send the supplier a more direct email saying that, he, you know, he needs to deal with you, that you're the project lead, you're the main contact. But even then, he doesn't need to say anything about the kind of gender um, aspect of it. Um, at that point I think you can definitely kind of try that tactic and see how it goes and usually that kind of can be quite effective and just sort of sending out the message that you're the person in charge Um, on your part I think you definitely should feel more comfortable just putting your foot down when this service provider I think it's ridiculous that he's scheduling meetings without you that you need to be in so don't let that kind of thing slide you know don't just say oh I can't make it that's such a shame you actually need to say no this meeting cannot happen without me I need to be in it therefore we need to reschedule and make it clear that can't happen future because if you just say oh unfortunately i can't make it then he'll think well i've gotten away with it and he'll do it in future but if you say no this meeting cannot happen then he'll get the message that you need to be in those conversations i would say you should probably expect some pushback and i don't think it's going to happen overnight you have to kind of persevere with this so both in kind of standing your own ground and also getting your boss you know to kind of push that message through But hopefully if you're both kind of doing your parts, that will get through. If that doesn't work, your boss might need to have a more frank conversation with the supplier saying that he needs to defer to you. He needs to take your lead and also to make it clear to him that if he doesn't do that, that could have implications for your company, you know, continuing to work with him or at the very least it'll affect that working relationship if that's something that's within his call to make. You know, you are the client in this situation, as you've rightly pointed out, so you should and you do have more power in this dynamic. So don't be afraid to lean on that in this situation. I hope that works out. If you've got a career question you'd like my advice on during next month's Ask Take a Tega segment, just email podcast at womenwho.co and let me know what's on your mind. And that's it for this month. Thank you for tuning in. For more career inspiration and information, Follow Women Who at Women Who on Instagram and Twitter or head to our website www.womenwho.co forward slash newsletter to sign up for our weekly newsletter, The Roundup. You can find me at Otega Uagba on Instagram and Twitter. And if you're listening to this on iTunes, don't forget to subscribe. And as always, please leave us a lovely five-star review whilst you're there. See you next time. (laughs) He <laughs>